0: Welcome to Global, a podcast by the International Republican Institute. Typically on this podcast, we look at stories about how countries and people are progressing towards, or sometimes away from, democracy. Other times, we step back and look at a theme or idea, like press freedom or corruption. But today, there's just one thing that's on everyone's minds, and it's on ours too. The coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19, is a global public health emergency the likes of which most of us have never seen before. But coronavirus is not just threatening people's health and well being, it is threatening global democracy. Governments are falling, elections are being postponed or canceled, and economies are under strain. Aspiring democracies are in crisis mode, and aspiring autocrats are seizing the opportunity. But that's not the whole story. Around the world, we see photos of medical first responders doctors, nurses, mobilizing to treat patients and save lives. There's another kind of first responder, the people who realize that after the crisis is too late and that the fight to preserve or expand democracy has to start now. This series of IRI's Global Podcast profiles these democracy first responders. We'll look at how politicians, activists, medical workers, journalists, tech pioneers, government officials, and everyday citizens like you and me are weathering the pandemic while protecting their country's democratic institutions, or in some case, building new ones. We'll talk to an anti-corruption advocate in Nepal, a journalist in Zimbabwe, former government official in Georgia, and more. These are very different people, but they have a goal in common, to respond to this crisis successfully while preserving and expanding political freedom. IRI supports democracy advocates in over 80 countries around the world, and so far, that experience has taught us that democracy can come out of this crisis stronger than before. If it does, the people we'll meet in this series will be the reason why. We are proud to bring you their stories. Let's dive in. To begin, we first spoke with Munyarazi Munyadolo. Munya is the editor of Open Parley ZW, a citizen journalism platform in Harare, Zimbabwe. He's also responsible for the Be The Media project as a part of the Mugamba Network, an initiative that trains young citizen journalists on how to use new media to express themselves. Through Calabash Media and ZW. Mugamba Network is giving young Zimbabweans a voice in the corridors of power. Munya has written for publications such as Foreign Policy and most recently appeared on the BBC to talk about Zimbabwe's response to the COVID-19 crisis. Most recently, Munya and OpenParley ZW built a platform to track COVID 19 cases in Zimbabwe and are educating Zimbabweans on how to use open source technology to crowdsource citizen solutions to the coronavirus. Munya, thanks so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate your insight and perspectives. Zimbabwe's first coronavirus casualty was a journalist named Zororo Makamba, who passed away on March 29th. Some argue his death what has exposed inadequacies in Zimbabwe's medical response to the coronavirus. What is your sense of the Zimbabwean government's preparedness to confront the, the virus overall?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Zororo's case was pretty intense. He's someone that I knew in the industry and I had interacted with him a number of times. So his death kind of hit us really hard as a young person who's young. And it's shook everyone. And it kind of caught everyone unawares and it just highlighted the the level of unpreparedness because he, he he comes from he came from an influential family. His family is pretty well off. He's he was pretty much exposed. So for him to be the first person to die, it was kind of like it just showed how how far the health system in Zimbabwe had collapsed. And uh, it highlighted how the Wilkins Hospital, the one that, that in, that's supposed to deal with the infectious diseases, was all prepared for the coronavirus. And it, and I think what came to light was the fact that his family got uh, a ventilator because because the the government, the the hospital didn't have a ventilator. They they ordered a ventilator, and then the hospital didn't have. The plugs that the ventilator can plug into, and that was one of the major reasons. So it was just just a really crazy scenario. And eventually, the the Chinese government stepped in and referred to the clinic, the, the hospital, and the hospital had to be shut down again. So and all this is happening, and the outbreak is already uh, in full full swing. So yeah, it just highlighted how. Unprepared our medical system was, and how dependent we are on, you know, foreign support and, you know, foreign donors mm. for healthcare. Yeah.
0: So you had mentioned that you knew Zororo both professionally and also personally, uh, and I can only imagine the kind of difficulties of kind of bearing with the loss on both of those both of those levels. Um, I'm also curious, in your opinion, um, as Zorro's case indicates, uh, journalists are often on the front lines of so many different issues. How, how has the coronavirus impacted the ability of journalism to kind of carry out reporting and coverage of you know, everything else that's happening in Zimbabwe at the same time?
1: It's always been very hard to be a journalist, but I think the coronavirus pandemic has just kind of made it a lot harder for journalists to operate. Uh, I think uh, so in Zimbabwe, you're either working for the, like a state newspaper or... Broadcaster or something like that, or you're an independent, journalist, and you kind of like polarized. So the the guys from the independent press are, are normally uh, normally getting less information, less access than than the guys from the states. So not now with the coronavirus, also it's kind of like. Uh, we, we're in the middle of a 21-day lock, lockdown, so it's dangerous for, for journalists to be walking around. There have been incidences where journalists have been um, forced to delete their footage because they've been taking pictures of policemen or like state security agents that are going around enforcing the, the lockdown. So, you know, they're getting ruffled up. Yeah.
0: And what has been the role of... Journalism for educating Zimbabweans about about COVID, it's kind of like what you were saying, you know, is independent journalism really filling a gap that the state is kind of trying to keep hidden? Uh, kind of what is specific to to COVID? How how is journalism playing playing a role?
1: Okay, so I think right now what's happening: journalists, bloggers, uh, influencers on social media—they have kind of taken the lead in terms of like. Uh, sharing information on on COVID, taking information from the World Health Organization, uh, something like one of our platforms is is the one that people are, are relying on. So in Zimbabwe, we actually have, uh, one. A national broadcaster. So we've got one, one national TV channel and then we've got a number of radio stations. We've got about 18 stations But to, to the bloggers and the social media personalities for, for their information. So they've kind of like taken up that information uh, and started sharing it on Twitter, on Facebook and creating content on WhatsApp and sharing it on in WhatsApp groups. That's been what, what's been leading the charge. Apart from that you know, really is still pretty popular. So they, 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 there is some information still circulating on the media platforms.
0: So you are the editor for OpenParley ZW and, you know, you have specifically done a lot um, to educate people around the coronavirus. What ha- how have you seen the impact of, of your specific efforts, your individual efforts um, kind of played out and how people are, are engaging with this information?
1: I think people have have uh, naturally just trusted us so we've been a reliable source of information. So- Kind of trust the information that comes from us. There's also a huge demand for that sort of information for like myth busting and you know, a lot of fake news that's been circulating on on social media. So there's a lot of there's there's a lot of demand for you know like up to date, relevant, specific content on you know issues that are coming up, like how how to, how to protect yourself from coronavirus, how to stay safe, uh, the updates, and, and 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 what's been really interesting has been the demand for updates in terms of like who's infected, who, how many people are infected, how many are not, and that sort of thing. So yeah, so our content has been really consumed by young people between the ages of 18 and 35. Those are the ones who have been really focused on uh, taking up our information. If I
0: understand correctly, OpenParley also created an open source technology to crowdsource kind of some citizen solutions to, to COVID, and that you did this during a virtual hackathon. Can you tell me just a little bit more about that project specifically and how, um, kind of like just what you alluded to, how young people are kind of poised to help bridge that information gap between citizens and governments?
1: All right, so it's actually ongoing. So what happened is we've had a, we've had a budget for, we've been running uh, several hackathons throughout the country for the last couple of months. And then when the coronavirus hit, we had a little bit extra for the last two hackathons we wanted to, to conduct. So we just decided to channel that money toward the, the virtual hackathon. So what we've done so far is we, we've created a platform called zw.info So we just take information from the Ministry of uh, Health and then created a platform where it aggregates the information, creates more visual data so that yeah, it, people can get up-to-date information in real time and see how that data translates into different things like where you are and how, if you're in the capital, how many people have been infected in the capital uh, or in your province. And then we've also added a COVID tracker, where, which uses your Google Maps uh, so you can upload your Google Map history, and then it, it'll show you where you've come across places where someone with uh, the coronavirus has has been. So currently, Zimbabwe has like uh, nine confirmed cases of coronavirus. So we're hoping to it'll be easier to contact tracing uh, using that to you know kind of like just check out how how far you've you've been exposed to the coronavirus using you know a simple tool like Google Maps. That
0: is. Very, very innovative. And, and just I love how you're able to just kind of shift the focus slightly of something that you were already already doing. I think that's, that's pretty great. Are, are you seeing, you know, other recommendations that are allowing you to kind of like refine this tool? Uh, you mentioned it's still kind of in progress, still developing. How how do you see this adapting and, and maybe being used in in other ways?
1: Oh yeah, so we've seen uh, quite a number of uh, projects that, that are doing similar things. So, like we've seen the Malaysia Kini, the the guys in Malaysia who've got a really cool app, similar to what we're trying to implement. So, we're gonna we're gonna adapt some of the things that they've done there onto our app. And then we're also working with. A bunch of young people from Nigeria—they're more keen on, you know, doing budget tracking for the coronavirus and making sure that their government in Nigeria they, they can track the, all the donations that are coming through. So we thought that was a cool tool to use. So we we are currently incorporating that into our application. And then we're also trying to build—we we try to replicate the our our platform for, for for Nigeria, for Zambia, for for Liberia, and for for Kenya as well. So kind of like just replicate the model for countries that haven't started it in, across Africa and then just deploy it uh, as far as possible. Uh, and then in that way we can also st- get all the data from across all these African countries and see how it maps out and uh, and we can actually have a better view of the coronavirus uh, impact on the African continent. That is a
0: phenomenal ever. And just kind of hearing the mix of those countries that, that you're talking about, like that's, that's very incredible for a variety of reasons. Um, not least of which is they represent a variety of kind of spots on a spectrum of democracy, right? Like there, there are some who have, a, you know, struggle a little bit with kind of being fully democratic. And then there are some who are kind of seen as being on the other end and much more kind of the poster child for what that looks like. But but all of this is kind of being pushed by, by people like you, by civil society, how do how do you see civil society's role, especially at a time like now, a time of crisis, on making sure that you know these democratic principles don't kind of get pushed by the wayside, and you know it, this isn't used by people for for either corruption or for greater authoritarianism.
1: So I work for Magamba Network. So what we've been trying to do over the past couple of years has been like. Uh, Seeing that the, the the civic space is shrinking, like the physical space is shrinking, and and I think the, the role of civil society right now it should be like to just be very adaptable and you know to be very responsive and use different tools that are at their disposal. So like we're, we're very keen on civil society organizations, not just focusing on the traditional model of like lobbying, you know, petitions, but also using like tools like civic tech tools, like, like the ones that we're building. Um, so that they can empower young people uh, to, to be the, at the forefront of, 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 of you know, pushing for democratic processes. Uh, so we think if there are more tools that are built and put in the hands of young people, you know, more localized tools. I mean, it's cool mm-hmm. to, to have civil tools but I mean if they're not localized or if they're not if young people in that particular country don't can't can't resonate with them then then they become useless but if the tools are locally built the ideas are from grassroots movements and uh, the tools are put in the hands of ordinary people then the civil society has a greater impact than you know like the traditional role of civil society. This way, it, they literally put the power in young people's hands. So that's where we see the power of like hackathons and you know these tools that we're building because it kind of involves young people. Young people can actually see the data. They can visualize it. They can hear it. They can play around with it. They can turn it into whatever they want to turn into. They have the right information when they're engaging online. So like they can reference certain material and share it and, and, you know, Demand certain things because they have been empowered by the information that is at their disposal. So I think that is where civil society needs to go and kind of like shift from like the traditional sense. The, there's nothing wrong with the traditional civil society, but I think in this in this in this current context where uh, most countries are under lockdown, how are you? How are you going to convene a meeting or uh, yeah, <laughs> or you know or where parliaments are almost all closed. You know, you can't really, your petition is not going to get anywhere. So you kind of really need to occupy the, you know, the social media streets, the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram handles, and, you know, make sure that your, your, your message is coming across uh, strongly and is engaging with people.
0: A couple more, a couple more questions uh, from my end. Um, you just You kind of just alluded to how... You know the adaptability of civil society, right? What What do you think is kind of happening next as far as Zimbabwean democracy? Like, are you are you worried or or hopeful for democracy in Zimbabwe
1: following uh, kind of this period of, of coronavirus? I think I think I'm, I'm hopeful. I think the the coronavirus kind of gave is kind of giving all governments, including Zimbabwe's government, a wake-up call in terms of like how to be better prepared or how to be responsive and how to really engage people in things that matter to them. So I think I'm really hopeful that after this process we'll have a better engagement with government, better issues resolved, and a a better pipelines uh, in terms of like government, young people, civil society engaging to find solutions to community problems. Because I think that's what's happening right now. Like, uh, ordinary generation are coming out, find, trying to find solutions to uh, mitigate the coronavirus. While it's sad that people are dying, there's a whole energy around, you know, people really getting engaged in what happens in their country, you know, because everyone is kind of like at a standstill. And so everyone is really focused on the same issues, uh, no matter where they are. So I think there's a renewed sense of engagement from people, hmm. and I think it will be difficult to, for people to disengage from that because I don't think anyone wants to go through this ever again. The last question I have is:
0: um, you, you mentioned you're on a 21 day lockdown, and kind of things are at quite the standstill. What, what is the the biggest change that you've seen in in daily life, and uh, in, in how this is impacting kind of everyday
1: Zimbabweans? The biggest thing that I've noticed is how much we are, you know, very dependent on the informal economy in our country. Like, we, it's very apparent that there's a huge demographic of people who are very, who live informal lives, who are on the streets, you know, selling wares, vendors. So, and they're going through an extreme experience. Uh, and you know, like the, the, the different societal divides that are there, there's people who have certain access and then there's people who don't have certain access. So like <laughs> issues to do with service delivery, like access to water, access to healthcare, access to like basic commodities have just been highlighted by, by, by the coronavirus case and the, the level of... Government incompetence <laughs> has been put at a put under a magnifying glass. So I think there's a level of consciousness that has just arisen amongst people, and people are more vocal. People are more quick to, you know, communicate. And, and I think because everyone is disengaged from their whatever it is that would have ordinarily occupy them uh, on a daily basis, they're now more focused on like, you know, like the service delivery issues and, you know, the lack of proper healthcare and now wants to make sure that, you know, things are done in the right place. So there's like, like I said, there's a high level of engagement and interest in national political issues and how those political issues affect service delivery, like access to healthcare, access to clean water, access to, you know, food and Uh, and and all the other essential stuff. Great.
0: Well, Munya, thank you so very much for, for taking the time. Thanks so much for your effort and your work that you're doing for Zimbabwe. I'm sure it is extremely appreciated and
1: most necessary at this time. Thank you very much.
0: Once again, we want to give a huge thanks to Munya Dodo for speaking to us from Zimbabwe. And wish him the best of luck as he continues to find ways to track COVID cases in Zimbabwe. Stay tuned for more episodes in your feed coming up about the ways that COVID and democracy intersect. Next up, you'll hear about how citizens are tracking and fighting corruption that's happening in Nepal. For more analysis and updates about democracy and this pandemic, follow us at IRI Global on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Travis Green, and thanks for listening
1: to Global.